welcome. I just didn't know. <laughs> welcome, welcome again to uh, our socialist book club, the podcast you love to listen to. That's Martin. <laughs> That's me. I'm Martin. I'm back again. What um, are the alternatives to listening to it? Are we in print yet? No, we're, we're not. not in print. We yet. should. We should do that. We should make it more accessible. So the yes. third mystery voice that you hear alongside your Martin and your Lydia is our Larry. Um, who is a political science student and one of my very favorite socialists and show buddies. He suggested Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber today, and I'm so glad we did, because I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really like that book. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for being here, Larry, and thank you for recommending this excellent book. Yeah, I just got in that zone where I'm like, this is the only thing I'm interested in for the next like week after I first read it, yeah. and then I just bothered you two into reading it and then supplanting the idea to like bring me on the pod you know it's it's not hard to imagine you having that reaction to it i read it and i was like this is really compelling this I, is really exciting i kept like sending excerpts of it to all of my friends being like whoops this describes us because yeah, i <laughs> like, yeah, like i missed the essay mm -hmm. like that he references in the, in the introduction that we wrote in 2013 that like went viral yeah like, that was just before my time on the internet yeah same yeah, I'd, I'd read that essay by the time that you told me about this book, and I was like, whoa, there's a book, cool, what a great follow-up. And it like it just fleshed out so much and applied a lot of these anthropological methods that I find really great. Um, something that David Graeber said that I really fangirled about <laughs> was this idea that his job as an anthropologist is to like figure out the implicit theories behind the stories that people tell him. Which is not to say that people lie, but that we're all guided by invisible assumptions that inform the beliefs that we then use to act. So implicit theories. And the implicit theory here is the idea that the vast majority of working people in the United States who are not wealthy are working to some extent a job that is full of bullshit. Um, and he has a really handy definition of what a bullshit job is. Is it the last version of it like that he uses at the end of like chapter one or two? Yes. Because like there's definitions like there's like the provisional definition yes. the working definition i just didn't remember what the full final version was right yeah. he does these like iterative definitions he right. lets you see how he puzzles through this definition and the yeah. one that i personally like that i think was the very last one he showed us was provisional definition two a bullshit job is a form of employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence even though the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and he di also further distinguishes between what a bullshit job is and what a shit job is. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, a shit job is a job that... Um, Just sucks. Is, yeah, it's, quote, usually not at all bullshit. They typically involve work that needs to be done and is clearly of benefit to society. It's just that the workers who do them are paid and treated badly. Right. They tend to be blue-collar or paid by the hour, whereas bullshit jobs tend to be white-collar and salaried when i when i hear shit job um i don't know if this is i don't know how much of this is the implication of the of the phrase but my mind immediately goes to like literal shit cleaning jobs sure. um, because they're an archetypal shit job like it's maybe not the most pleasant thing to be cleaning up feces but that's labor that makes a real positive difference in the world it's work that i would say needs to be done yeah um, but the people who are doing that work are often underpaid, not treated with much respect. Mm -hmm. um, very different from a bullshit job where in which people are often treated with a lot of respect and paid very well. Right, and like a 
point he makes is that if a bullshit job were to disappear completely from the world, um, you know, if there are entire buildings full of bullshit jobs that if they disappeared, the world would either be completely the same or slightly better off. I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember towards the end of the book, um, he pulls out this example where uh, he's like, oh, a lot of bank workers in Ireland went on strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then instead of, like, bringing society to its knees like they thought it might happen, like business pretty much went on as usual people yeah. started paying each other with checks um and just using that uh compare you know stark contrast to a, a couple of weeks before that strike when um a large group of garbage collectors went on strike in ireland and uh you know the the city caved within like 10 days because everyone's <laughs> like oh garbage is piling up we can't have this we can't live yeah. yeah it's like work that has to be done and is thus undervalued or treated as somehow being honorable or noble for being valued mm-hmm. um and it kind of reminds me a little bit of something we talked about last week with modern monetary theory mm-hmm. um there was that great quote that we kept repeating because it slapped um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was um we can afford what we can do why is it that during the banker bank worker strike that people were able to write each other provisional checks and treat that like it was real material money it was because the things that we they were exchanging had real material value, and in the absence of an outside authority, they were able to generate for each other these symbols of what they could do. Right. Like I emphasis can... on the symbology of it. Right. Because it, if just either one person or a single substantial amount of people just rejected that, mm-hmm. the whole system kind of would have fallen apart. Because mm-hmm. it's premised on like a general trust, a general acceptance of norms that. This only works as long as all of us or a sufficient number of us believe that it works. The minute like you get to that breaking point of um, aberration or disbelief in this just generally accepted system is when it starts hitting problems and generating friction. Right. We have all of these rituals of consensus, right? And the thing is that the consensus that we have around the value of a dollar bill, of an American dollar bill, is very much the result of the coercive imperialistic power of the American government. We know that the dollar is worth this much because the U.S. government has invested this much money into securing the commodities upon which it is used to buy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Like when we think about that value, that dollar, that ritualized consensus, that ritualized consensus is also what creates some of the jobs that we see here. Like the rituals of meetings, the mm-hmm. rituals of reports, mm-hmm. the, the rituals of creating impressive data visuals that project a completely unpredictable future. Speaking engagements, conferences, yeah. retreats. Yeah. So, so I feel like uh, we're, we're getting into some good stuff here, but I want to kind of take a break for a moment and just like make sure we're clear on like the 101 basics here so um we alluded to this article that went viral Mm -hmm. um in which david graber basically as you said alleges that a lot possibly a majority of the jobs in a society are truly useless conferring no value on society um and shit (laughs) (laughs) okay just shouldn't be a thing like People shouldn't be doing these. Right, They're right, a waste right. of time. They'd be better yeah. off. Right, society would be better off without it. And this this article really uh, resonated with a lot of people. It went viral. It was expanded into this book. The, the thesis of this book is um, that 
our society is full of these bullshit jobs and this really resonates with people it, it resonates with me reading this book is like a continual like wow oh shit uh this is at the same time totally new to read about and yet on the other hand it's like i've known this all my life or not yeah. all my life but all my my working life right yeah, um, it is a very good articulation of just so many of the things that we've all we can say we've all experienced in the workplace like even if you said it was like the spectrum of bullshit jobs and how like even shit jobs or non-bullshit and non-shit jobs like can still have go through like bullshitization. Mm-hmm. Like they can have bullshit elements like we'll arbitrarily just say if your job is less than half bullshit, then it's not a bullshit job. And then you can then go from there to decide if it's a shit job or not. Right. Mm-hmm. So like I've never worked a bullshit job, but all of my jobs had bullshit elements yeah exactly mm-hmm. and i think at a at a minimum every working person experiences that and how this brings focus to that experience by having all these personal stories of jobs that were 100 percent bullshit yeah yeah so let's talk about that process of bullshitization which is adding more of these unnecessary tasks that add no social value and we can we're going to talk more about social value too later but they are tasks that are the thing that make the work itself real shitty, real boring, and they often create the vast, they often compose the vast bulk of some jobs in the private sector. Yeah. This isn't just made up government jobs. He keeps referring to this idea that um, we think about bullshit jobs being something that was restricted to like a centrally planned socialist economy, mm-hmm. like, like in the a USSR. Maximum, like right. He, bring, he brings up the quote, the classic USSR joke. Uh, we pretend to work and the government pretends to pay us. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's, that's really intuitive for a lot of people in the United States. We're like, oh yeah, the excesses of a centrally planned economy, you end up with all this make work, mm-hmm. um, which there seems to be some truth to that with certain, certainly with some centrally planned ec- economies. But we often overlook that like, oh, we have exactly the same thing going on here in the United States in like tons and tons of jobs. It's all like bullshit make work. In the private sector is what in the private sector, is- right emphasizes like so he divides up different types of bullshit tax tasks into five major varieties which are flunkies goons duct tapers box tickers and taskmasters right so a duct taper is somebody who has to cobble together different things that were not designed to work together Mm -hmm. um one example he provides is uh when there was a kind of discrepancy in the way that different databases worked within a company they had to hire someone whose only job was just to like carry the data over manually from one place to another and Mm -hmm. make sure that everything interfaced when this was something that could have been easily automated yes but uh yeah just or just code a new entirely new software program Mm -hmm. right this is the definition he uses. Many duct taper jobs are the result of a glitch in the system that no one has bothered to correct. Tasks that could easily be automated, for instance, but haven't been either because no one has gotten around to it or because the manager wants to maintain as many subordinates as possible or because of some structural confusion or some combination of the three. So, yeah, duct taping. Being hired to, like, hold a bucket under a drip instead of just fixing the roof right 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 yeah and that the explanation behind like why an employer or like a boss or whatever would view that in a positive light is not an economical 
thing. It was like the anthropological thing where they want to have as many subservience as possible because it's right. a reflection of their status and power. Yeah, that kind of brings us to flunkies. Right, um, this holdover from the feudal system. So that's that's another of our categories. Yeah, flunkies. So uh, David Graeber traces the idea of flunkies back to like the the staff of feudal lords. Right. Flunky positions are created because those in powerful positions in an organization see underlings as badges of prestige. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the more of them you have around you, the more powerful you seem. Is this efficient? Like, is this an efficient use of resources? Is this the private market deciding what is the most cost-efficient way to do things? No. It's the manifestation of this very impractical managerialist ideology. Right. This idea that if you create more jobs of people telling other people what to do, the people doing the jobs will be doing them, and but also appear more efficient. Um, there, there's a lot of reasons going into this. Um, he describes sometimes, sometimes the reasons are like an idea of increasing, paradoxically increasing productivity by like adding more steps in the system that tries <laughs> to safeguard productivity. There's also the idea that comes, just comes down to prestige, like you said, like uh, the idea that, oh, here's a small publishing company, we get a very low volume of calls, but we need to hire a receptionist, mm-hmm. even though like the boss himself could just answer the calls. This was mm-hmm. like two or three a day. No, we need to hire a person to answer those calls because... If someone comes to visit us and they you... see us without a receptionist, they won't think we're real. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's outward-facing, but it's also inward-facing. Like, a boss needs a, a receptionist to feel that he's important. Or that he's um, a real boss. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm using... I'm using he here not just, like, to assume, like, the boss is a dude, but because there are, like, gender dynamics that play into this. Mm -hmm. Um, Receptionists, secretaries have historically been women. It's been kind of often the particular flunkies that have to do with uh, presenting a public face, emotional labor, and so on, um, have tended to be women. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he makes some really important points about gender and the history of the division of labor. Um, how, you know, in early stages of labor division, you see this division of work into tasks that stories get told about being assigned to men, Mm -hmm. and the work that you tell stories during being assigned to women, which I find a really useful, sweet, and maybe possibly overly essentialist description. Yeah. But he talks about how inevitably the moment that you create a division of labor and then a hierarchy of labor, this results inevitably in the quantification and privatization of life, which then results in a bunch of bullshit make-work tasks that exist only for the reason of ritualizing prestige to others and massive corporations and um, other kinds of industries. Yeah. So we've talked about... Flunkies. Flunkies and duct tapers. Yeah, goons are people like hired <laughs> lawyers who are hired to intimidate um, people from rival firms, or it could be used to describe people in advertising agencies that intentionally manipulate images and copy and media in order to make the consumer public feel inadequate and thus drive that consumerist behavior. Right. I remember, I remember that that example used i forgot that that was listed as one of the goons mm-hmm. but it really makes sense mm-hmm. intimidating the consumer making the consumer feel um <laughs> feel inadequate like you you need our products in order to 
cover up your your yeah. gross insufficiency for sure um i love how he says the most obvious example of a goon like category is or would be national armed forces like having a military because mm-hmm. that is the ultimate coercive force. Yeah. Because right, you only right. need a you only need a military in case literally anyone else around you has a military. If no one has one, no one else needs one. True. Right. So the necessity of having them is just to post up on other countries. <laughs> no, no. This this is an interesting and markets necessarily. This yeah. this is an, this gets to an interesting thing about what we consider bullshit jobs mm-hmm. because some of these some of the bullshit jobs he talks about are like literally you're not even really doing a task that's productive to anyone. Whereas one like some of these goons, we possibly might include soldiers in that category. We might include um, someone like an advertiser whose basic task is to make the consumer feel inadequate. Mm. These people are doing things. They are not just engaged. They're not just working at a task that doesn't have any effect. They're having real effects in the world. Mm. Um, for example, you, you, we might say, Oh, society would be better off without this advertising that serves to make people feel inadequate. But, um, but they're certainly having an effect yeah. that ultimately makes money for, you know, at least yeah. by the logic of the market, yeah. they're being productive in that they're making money for someone. And then soldiers, that gets, I don't remember what exactly he settles on for soldiers, but that's mm-hmm. kind of an interesting case. One might argue, oh, the world would be better off with no soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true in a sense. There's plenty of people who would not quite see it that way there's like two factors um of the the subjectivity of what a bullshit job is or isn't and it's like on an individual individual level where the person being asked this thinks that they have a bullshit job as well as being able to point to the ways in which it produces nothing of value either Mm -hmm. objectively or subjectively um and the the minimum when you get into the military and you're having um the conversation between the objective and subjective value of what a military does or doesn't do or did or didn't do um, can um, get into like moral questions versus just like pure value questions because it's kind of I guess we'll all agree with Graeber when he says like he, he's not the decider of like the official metric of determining social value Mm -hmm. it's very subjective and like you can provide evidence to i guess support your claim when talking about value but it's more important when you're just thinking about like if someone thinks they have a bullshit job they can think of real examples as what they think of as producing no social value whatsoever Mm -hmm. and that's the still very important if not sufficiently important because again what we were talking about earlier like these like with the people in Ireland who were just using checks like it was the system was propped up on the a sufficient number of them like being in agreement that this is what we're going to do and that you have that same kind of thematic similarity to these jobs where so many of them only put up with them that being like capitalism or like their job in this dumb system of, that is their company only as long as still enough people around them like they see their jobs and like they do basically what I do mm-hmm. or they do something they've talked to them and they, they know like through workplace inquiry that they think they has a bullshit job but they're still working and that's a reciprocated um, belief that like you could have you just imagine a floor like and sorry to bother you like the reason the strike worked is because enough of them were like this is bullshit mm-hmm. and this is what we have to do in reaction to it just imagining a workplace where it's the opposite mm-hmm. like that action that direct action does not take place because no one is able to really 
come to agreement or articulate to each other the bullshit things out of their jobs if to possibly make their entire job bullshit. Right, and it's a subjectivity of precarity too, this idea that, oh, if anybody finds out that I spend 80% of my day on social media pretending to do work when I have no work to do, then I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get thrown off of this sweet gravy train, which is yeah. driving to work every day, having to pay money to feed myself and to get healthcare in order to have a body that works for the job, spending 40 hours there, having my entire day devoted to this terrible mind-numbing task during which I can do nothing that I would actually rather be doing. Um, and then, yeah. yeah. The, when Graber talks, there's like that one moment where Graber's like, I imagined what hell might look like, where it's like you being forced to be in a place and be trained in something, but then have to be forced to do something that you were not trained in. Mm-hmm. Uh, my version of hell is the story of the security guard who's supposed to, who's paid to sit next to like a single art gallery and what in case the fire alarm goes off and he's instructed like per his contract or the terms of his employment he's not allowed to do anything he can't be on his phone he can't have be on a book he can't have a light he can't do anything he just has to sit there and just be attentive and he says like it was the most mind-numbing thing like it broke my mind mm-hmm. being only left to my thoughts for like eight hours a night straight mm-hmm. and how i mean if the fire alarm does go off I mean, there's nothing he can really do. He doesn't have a fire extinguisher. Like, he has a phone or a walkie to, you know, call someone, but, I mean, the alarm would go off. Uh-huh. So there's literally no reason for him to be there. And on top of that, he can't even do it. He has no freedom to do anything in this obvious, just huge chunk of time where he should, if he wanted to, he could just do so much more and be so more productive, but he can't. And that's my imagination. That's what my vision of hell is. For yeah, sure. There's there's a real uh, there's a real human cost to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a real psychic violence. I love that terminology that keeps coming psychic up. Psychic violence. And I want to go back to this subjectivity of precarity. How it's an inversion of that collective solidarity we want to feel in, say, a unionized workplace or a self-governing workplace. It's this idea that everybody around me might be doing exactly as little work as I do. And all that we can really do is perform exhaustion mm-hmm. and perform resentment of others' perceived like laziness in order to feel that we ourselves belong here in this miserable holding pattern <laughs> that we call the work week. <laughs> so, oh yeah, I worked. I was up all night getting ready for my our, our press conference tomorrow or our <laughs> weekly meeting. Like I had to make sure all my charts and graphs were ready to go. Mm-hmm. And then the other person, it's like the same thing where it's like, oh, dude, I only got six hours of sleep. That's nice. Say, oh, yeah, I only got four. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But in yeah. the workplace. This like atomized, alienated, like one upmanship. Yeah. Right. Where you can't just be like, yeah, it sucks. We're really tired. We yeah. should yeah. sleep yeah. better. And so that brings us to category four. Uh, box tickers. One of my favorite, personally, one of my favorite categories. I think it's the category that probably fucks up the most number of care work jobs, um, teaching jobs, nursing jobs, social mm-hmm. work jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um, box tickers here refers to employees who exist only or primarily to allow an organization to be able to claim it is doing something that, in fact, it is not doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, box ticking, right? Filling out the correct administrative forms to make sure that everybody's time is accounted for, everybody's everything that they say they do, all of the outreach they do. Um, and it's certainly something that is taking up more and more of the time of teachers, nurses, social workers, and other caring mm-hmm. professionals. Yeah. 
Yeah, like I can. I that was really easy for me to conceptualize. Like, um, there's a bunch of jobs um, from people working in like university administration mm-hmm. or just faculty, and how like I could very easily imagine like um, an order coming down from whatever office in a university, be like, okay, so we're gonna like talk we're going to add another layer of paperwork like another one of those arbitrary bureaucratic things but then once they make that decision like okay we need to create a new job a new position for someone just to oversee this new thing that we created for bullshit reasons and so a job is born out of of, of a bullshitization mechanism mm-hmm. yeah i i also found uh box tickers the most um the most easy to conceptualize one that one that I'm like oh yeah immediately I, I get this I see this all the time mm-hmm. by the way so David just as just a silly side note here David yeah. Graeber is American I but, thought he was British oh I thought I looked it up and because a lot of a lot of things about the book he just lives in the UK oh okay a lot of a lot of uh... things about the book kept striking me as very British and like an American wouldn't say box ticker, box checker, right? Ooh, good point. And like, and he had that whole like Douglas Adams aside. I was just like, I'm getting intensely. Well, that's British. just because Douglas Adams rips. Right, and he, I was getting intensely British vibes. <laughs> no, you're right. He is American. He got um, chucked out of Yale during his tenure review process for being a pain in the ass. <laughs> right, that which is about to say right. our kind of pain in the ass. <laughs> right, right. Um, but so he ended up getting a job in the UK. So he's like, I'm done being a pain in the ass in the United States. I'm gonna go be a pain in the arse in England. <laughs> Stupid. I'm sorry. Vic. (laughs) David Martin. Um, Fun fact about me, I I lived in the UK for one year as a child, so... uh, Uh So you're a resident expert on this. Is his language reflective of his experience? Definitely. Um, But anyway, no, yeah, box stickers. um, And that's another thing where a lot of people's immediate thought about when they hear about this category of bullshit job. They're like, oh, yeah, that's something that you either get in government jobs or, like, due to government regulation of jobs. But, again, we really see this in the private sector as well. It's not just about complying with regulations. It's also the private sector being, like, you know, some, some person some middle manager or upper level manager or analyst or HR person, you know, not being compelled to do so by the government, but merely mm-hmm. by their superiors will be like, oh, we're gonna increase productivity by doing such and such process. Yeah. We need to be getting reports about this stuff so that we can increase our productivity and make more money. Yeah. Um, and then it turns into a whole box ticking process. We get reports, we have reports about reports, we have, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it spirals. Yeah, I think the most, I wanna say probably the most Important specific category of bullshit jobs, and only because of its consequence on life on this planet, is the newfound neoliberal relationship between um, government, militaries, and private contractors. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. like in the U. And he mentions the, the one of the first bullshit jobs story is from a subcontractor of a subcontractor of a subcontractor um, of the German military, mm-hmm. and how this firm is entirely private it's been contracted out by the german military so it's german taxpayer money that is being bullshitified Mm -hmm. by these layers of subtraction and that isn't that's transplantable to the u.s like this relationship between the u.s government and boeing lockheed um all the different weapons makers and um bomb manufacturers and how once you once they can recognize how much money there is to pilfer 
there exists this very real incentive for them to bullshitify their own businesses because of this solidified relationship between private entities and the government in terms of defense spending and how beyond just the moral um, failure of us, of the U.S. and arguably any other major country, spending so much money on a defense beyond just like the real material economic value of what is being purchased, but all of the untold millions and billions of dollars that are just the cost of the bullshitization of these private companies, but in response to realizing there is more money to be made if we do things worse, it's resulted in the U.S. spending almost a trillion dollars a year on God knows how much they're actually spending on normal things versus bullshit things. There was a great episode of King of the Hill in which one of the characters who works on an army base as a hair cutter um, gives his friend Hank a haircut. And hmm. Hank is like, let me pay for this, buddy. And he's like, no, dude, it's on me. And he's like, no, send me a bill. So he sends the bill, and it's $900. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so maybe, Wait who, who did this? Was it Dale? It was Bill. Oh, it was yeah. Bill. Yeah, it was Bill. And so this leads me to one of the libertarian counter arguments that David Graeber includes in the narrative as a mm. dialectical uh, strategy, <laughs> which is, a, a libertarian would respond well if the government weren't involved if, of course a government enterprise like mm. military spending is as bloated as this is and the rejoinder to that is like well no because I mean there are plenty of like there are plenty of examples in which the public sector would actually be much more efficient than the private for mm. example Medicare he quotes Obama who oh I, I love that quote yeah let me pull up that quote oh, yeah, yeah, that friends good, that good this quote. is a good quote because, I mean, it is entirely, it's a damning critique of the medical industry, of yeah. the health insurance industry. But he refuses, he is ideologically constrained to be unable to see it for what he's actually saying. And this is an excerpt from an interview with then U.S. President Barack Obama about some of the reasons why he bucked the preferences of the electorate and insisted on maintaining a private, for-profit health insurance system in America. Quote. I don't think in ideological terms. I never had, Obama said, <laughs> continuing on the healthcare theme. Classic Obama. Everybody Classic. who supports single-payer healthcare says, look at all this money we could be saving from insurance and paperwork. That represents one million, two million, three million jobs filled by people who are working at Blue Cross Blue Shield or Kaiser or other places. What are we going to do with them? Where are we employing them? Unquote. Because that, that is him saying, what are we going to do about all these bullshit jobs yeah. that yeah. he is explicitly stating are real and that for political reasons apparently unideological reasons we can't do something like Medicare for all we can't even do something like the public option because that would be in direct competition to bullshit yeah. and we can't accept that neoliberalism cannot accept that right. we cannot challenge the inefficiency of the market with producing a more efficient system yeah. there's another quote of his that is expressly important to me because of my research into Medicare specifically there's another book written by Stephen Brill who wrote who weirdly I'm just now realizing there's kind of a similarity between that and bullshit jobs. He wrote a long form essay in Time magazine uh, at around like 2012, maybe 2011. No, it would have had to have been before, like, I think during um, the ACA deliberations, where the essay went viral and he turned it into a book called uh, A Bitter Pill, and it's just about like the failure of American politics concerning healthcare policy in, in the 21st century. And how there's a quote from Obama tying into this where he's talking about private insurance. 
and versus like public insurance. He's like, so he says something to the effect of, uh, it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the bottle. Like that's the <laughs> quote, like that metaphor, like tooth, the toothpaste being health insurance, the bottle being like the health industry mm-hmm. and how we've the, we've like what he says with it, the 46,000 jobs or whatever. It's like these jobs and these institutions have grown. They're here. Like it's not worth the trouble to uproot them from their bullshit foundations in favor of a more efficient and more morally equitable system. It's it, the tooth. It's hard to put the toothpaste back in the bottle. It's better mm-hmm. to do these patchwork duct tape pieces of legislation mm-hmm. to try to Fuck yeah. meet these neoliberal consensus on what we should be doing to maintain the bullshit status quo. Right, and so David Graeber um, goes on to editorialize on this whole, like, really, like, exemplary Barack Obama quote. He goes, I would encourage the reader to reflect on this passage because it might be considered a smoking gun. Here's (laughs) the most powerful man in the world at the time publicly reflecting on his signature legislative achievement, and he is insisting that a major factor in the form that the legislature took is the preservation of bullshit jobs. Yeah, and that's that's uh, that's really powerful. That's a big deal. It is easier to imagine an industry that is full of people doing work that bores and depresses them <laughs> because it is literally their job to be like, no, sorry, our profit margins do not allow you to get cancer treatment. Good luck on GoFundMe. Yeah. Fuck you. As opposed to just say like, eh. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. So And and to be fair, it's not uh it's not like we're averse when creating policy to like it's not like our job is to preserve existing calls jobs at all costs. Um it's possible that um it's possible that Barack Obama at that point was maybe fudging the truth a little i don't know if preserving those bullshit jobs was necessarily his top priority so much as doing something that runs counter to like powerful pharmaceutical and medical interests right Um, because we we enact policies that like kill jobs all the time Mm -hmm. um it's just that but it is it is really interesting that at this point we were like oh we can't we have to protect these jobs by the way i'm admitting that they're bullshit jobs right yeah um, so it was never really about the jobs. It was about protecting the interests of the ruling class. Right, and, and the ruling class needs these bullshit jobs to exist. <laughs> oh yeah, how do you guys feel about what he says early in the book about how um, the ruling class benefits from a society that is too depressed and for being overworked and everything like that? Right, like the very last time that we had an economy that could support the kind of leisure and rebellion of the like 60s counterculture, um, it became pretty clear to the employer ruling class that having a bunch of people with a bunch of time on their hands does not lead to a stable order or yeah. a, a one that consumes. He talks about the the furtive consumerist behaviors that befall people who work 40 hour plus work weeks which is to say the kind of furtive shopping that you do at your desk when you um are pretending to work on something else Mm -hmm. or when you buy coffee right before work because it's one of the only things that brings you joy and you don't really have time to make it at work or at home i mean yeah or you know all of these other tiny slices of enjoyment that you can squeeze into the 40 hour work week are very profitable for the consume for the for the ruling class yeah yeah absolutely um yeah i i mean i i buy that uh 
it really it really just kind of for me demolishes the kind of conservative libertarian perspective on um our society and our economy is set up the way it's supposed to be because it is efficient we are all maximizing our profit that's clearly not the case our economy is not running in a way that's remotely efficient it's set up in such a way uh, it's set up in such a way that um a way that preserves the social order a way that preserves consumerism preserves the kind of uh a system under which people are stressed out and buying all the time exactly and never quite having enough to be really comfortable or relaxed or ready to take a lot of time off or retire early yeah. i just i just struggle with this um almost like intentional language behind the systems we see like almost in a conspiratorial way mm-hmm. like when he says like the ruling class like realized that um having a free uh, economically secure population that's educated and is in a, agreement about what they need to do with their time and money, assuming money is even in the equation at this point, is bad for them. And so they've taken the necessary steps to not make that the case. It okay. sounds good. For me, it's like I get it's more easier for me to just accept this as like an organic um, conclusion to just the systems that have developed under capital rather than. What was that meeting in like the early 1900s between like J.P. Morgan and a bunch of other rich people? They met like off of uh, Jekyll Island and like came up with like they like the rich moguls of the era literally met in a castle to right, like right. De- talk about like economic policy and like what they need to do to shape the country in a specific direction or in a specific way. I mean, like I don't see that happening here because oh, yeah, yeah. it just seems so complicated that no, like no one could have planned this out to be so successful because what we realize is all these rich billionaires or um, capitalists like they're still like they created businesses with bullshit in them which is non-economic so I I don't trust them to have had the foresight to or like develop strategically a a society such as this that has turned out to benefit them so much yeah I I see what you're saying Um, no I, I agree with you I when I say society is set up in such a way that it benefits the status quo i'm not saying that you know a secretive cabal met together and we're like oh we're gonna plan society to be this way i think it's more a combination of a what you said um it just just kind of the natural end point of these processes i but i think i would say the conspiracy the the closest thing to a conspiracy is not the fact that it was set up this way intentionally in a planned way i would say the closest thing to a conspiracy is the fact that the status quo doesn't make any kind of efforts to change things that are bad but benefits the rich and powerful Mm -hmm. i don't think any any rich and powerful person sat down and was like oh we're gonna we're gonna cultivate a society in which everyone's stressed out and depressed because that'll make me rich but rather you know if it were in the interest of the rich and powerful to make sure that everyone was feeling better and had more freedom they might take some steps to correct that but it's not so they're they're not taking such steps right he never claims that this is a conscious political project despite the fact that it directly benefits the ruling class yeah um it certainly benefits the ruling class to have policy that doesn't require a living wage but anyway um what he does name are embedded cultural attitudes that have permeated the cultural consciousness 
of work. So mm-hmm. he talks about the history of time. He talks about the history of theology and labor. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about the way in which like Northern European attitudes about um, how labor is something that is both punishment and creation is what makes labor valuable, an act of service, an act of deference and nobility to the existing social order. Yeah. It is the way that you learn how to be in the world as a social person alongside others. Yeah. He names pretty much only medieval European um, precedents for the world of work that we have today, including feudalism, the apprentice model in the Middle Ages. Um, he talks about how it used, you know, in this like European apprenticeship model, you have children who are sent to live in other people's households, regardless of your income, your, your, your class, so that you could learn what it's like to be in a different family, so that you could learn how to eventually apprentice at their labor and create your own self-employed small business. Mm-hmm. You worked for others in order to learn how to work for yourself. Yeah. And as feudalism fell and capitalism rose, you instead had this displaced proletariat that had to work for other people's wages their entire lives, thus kind of kept in this adolescent holding pattern. Um, He talks also about the transformation of time as a relative organic thing into a sidereal thing, something fixed and absolute, Um, and how the moment that you were able to quantify time exactly, you were able to package it and sell it to others, such as we now do in the waged work world. This, once you're able to package time in that quantifiable hard way, you were able to suddenly have your time belong to someone else. I'm not paying you to sit around. I'm not paying you to goof off right now. If you can't, if you don't have something to do while you're in my building on my dollar, then find something to do. Some pointless make work task. Yeah. It is the authoritative relationship itself that creates that bullshitization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good summary of that part of the book. Um, I'll admit I, I skimmed through a little bit of that. Uh, I would say that the the but uh, yeah no I mean that's that's a key part of it is kind of tracing the winding journey. How did we get to the point where we as a society um, think of work in such a way that all of this bullshitization of the economy is normal to us mm-hmm. or even seen as like the right way for things to be mm-hmm. um and uh i i like the way the book works and that it starts out with this bold thesis hey have you ever noticed that like most jobs are completely useless and pointless um and then after it kind of it kind of talks about this for a while and then it's like okay let's go back and trace like how did we get to this point what are the historical and cultural roots of this mm-hmm. um the way we think about time like you said the way we think about work not just as a means to an end, but as a, you know, work has this moral dimension. It has this kind of personal dimension. Right. It's better to be employed doing something that brings no social value to others or joy to you, so long as you are not simply resting right. on your laurels and slipping into de- degeneracy. Right. What was the quote he, he <laughs> mentioned from, uh, I don't remember the origin of the quote, but it, it was just a proverb. Uh, Idle hands are knitting the devil's sweaters. Right. <laughs> the devil's sweaters. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard I've heard <laughs> idle hands are doing the devil's work, um, uh-huh. but I, I really appreciated this this fun sweater twist. He actually contrasts that idiom, which, by the way, we should share with our sweater knitting uh, anarchist friend Katie. We should. <laughs> um, so, 
Idle fingers knit sweaters for the devil, my great-grandmother used to warn her daughter back in Poland. But this kind of traditional moralizing is actually quite different from the modern, if you have time to lean, you have time to clean. Yeah. Because its underlying message is not that you should be working, but that you shouldn't be doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Yes. And which again leads to that furtive consumerism. Right, right. This consumption in hiding, this joy in hiding, this stealing work in tiny little ways. He refers to this task, this act of guerrilla time stealing. Mm-hmm. He had a couple of people write in being like, actually, my bullshit job affords me the structure and space that I need to do things like work on my novel mm-hmm. and organize my workplace. I consider my job to be subsidizing, subsidizing the, un- the union organizing that I'm doing at work. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that, that was one of the reactions I had to this. Um, I would say, I wouldn't say that I've ever had a, a fully bullshit job, or even, even that much of a mostly bullshit job. Mm-hmm. But I definitely related to a lot of this. I relate to bullshit being in jobs. At times, I found myself thinking, well, some of these jobs sound pretty nice. <laughs> if I had, like, two hours of work a do- to do per week, and I was, like, could sequester myself in an office for the other 38... I would love that. Mm-hmm. I, I would... think that's where everybody starts off. And right. then you just get worn down because though you have freedom, well, you have found freedom in your office, like there does experience this kind of like stress well, and I... fear about like getting caught by like a right. boss who's coming to check up on you. Like how they f- have to find the time. Like some are better than others about yeah. like being able to steal time for to right. do whatever the, they want. The generalized anxiety well, of being caught. Part of it, yeah, I mean, in some of those jobs, if you really had two hours of work a week to do and 38 that you could spend, you know, as long as you were a little secretive about it, you could do whatever you want. For some people, that would be good. For me, I would love that. But it's usually not that, there's usually not that degree of freedom. There's usually some element of, okay, we kind of know that you don't have that much work to do, but you have to pretend. You have to, you know, you're standing in this, uh, you're standing guarding this empty room, but you're not allowed to read a book in the meantime. Oh, yeah, or like they'd rather you read the book there than just stay at home and read the book. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, It's like your presence is an indication of a base kind of productivity. Right, a way of paying tribute to, like, the illusion that your job matters. Yeah, like, it matters so much, I have to be here. I can't work from home. Mm -hmm. And and that, that speaks to the moral aspect of the work um the, the way we think about it as a moralistic thing yeah. we're fine with people having useless jobs but we would be we're fine with paying someone large amounts to do virtually nothing but we would be mad at them if we were paying them to literally like stay at home and live a worthwhile life mm-hmm. live um, a happy life <laughs> we if if there's not enough work to go around you should at least be miserable for eight hours a day mm-hmm. um if you're gonna you know deserve money yeah one of the case studies here is of a guy named eric who was working i think at some computer science like type job mm-hmm. and he comes from a working class family and is you know basically paid to show up and pretend to work like everybody around him knows it's a joke everybody knows that his job doesn't matter or mean anything but he can't talk to anybody about it mm-hmm. so he just steals time as flagrantly as he can and <laughs> yep. shows up to work drunk and <laughs> <Right>. messy <laughs> and yeah. gross and so but like, he charges a bunch of money to the corporate credit card for just non-company expenses he goes to an anarchist conference just because he can on company time (laughs) what a king and so for some people this would be a dream job but for this guy it was driving him like up the wall like he was he was 
his health was deteriorating and David Graeber speculates why. And some of the explanations he gives are like, he was a young man from a working class background, a child of factory workers, no less, fresh out of college and full of expectations, suddenly confronted with the jolting introduction to quote, the real world. Or the, which in, the big boy jobs. Right, which in this case means that pretty much any executive will count on a 20 something white male to know any like stuff about computers. <laughs> um, and they would give someone like Erica Cushy job if it made sense for right. them to like. Yeah, and it, it seemed yeah. in this case, if I recall correctly, it was kind of a result of a ongoing spat between two different managers that was papered over by creating this complete, this completely useless position. Mm-hmm. And so there was no way for him to extract any kind of meaning from this job. Not right. even at least I'm doing this to feed my kids. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and and that that was a big moment for me. Um, when it talked about how him coming from a working class background meant that he was unprepared for dealing with the bullshit. And that I was like, oh, I would have thrived in a situation like that, potentially, because as someone who grew up, you know, upper middle class, definitely ensconced in that kind of understanding of how you know, what's expected of the working world, understanding even if I didn't grow up with the understanding that a large majority or like possibly a majority of jobs are bullshit, I am familiar with a lot of these bullshit concepts, like working around people's egos in the workplace, uh, participating in kind of collecting collective fictions, like all of that is stuff that I'm like, oh yeah, that's kind of how work is, even if I didn't have as good an understanding of that as I may have after reading this book. That would have been tolerable to me. I would have been able to be like, oh yeah, fair enough, I have this weird, cushy gig that uh, exists for God knows what reason, but hey, that means I, I'm getting paid and I can like explore my interests, maybe work on my personal projects in the meantime, that's cool. But if I grew up like with more of an expectation that work is in here, you know, it's going to be something inherently productive. Like you're building the equivalent of steel or coal. Yeah. Something that is like this apocryphal backbone of America or society right. versus I, going in and just having make work. Yeah, I, like, I, I can, see, like my, I can see myself floundering the way he did in that situation. And I want to touch on two things based on this. I want to touch on education and I want to make sure I touch on Theranos and Silicon Valley. <laughs> in, in Do you general. mean Diagnosis and Therapy <laughs> Incorporated? Oh boy. <laughs> okay, so he talks about some of the different students who talked about their bullshit jobs in college. Mm-hmm. So here they are going into debt what, to, in order to pay tuition at a job that is paying the minimum wage to do bullshit. Mm-hmm tasks that these students describe as being easily automatable or so mind-numbing that all they can do is just kind of like begrudge their situation and think about full communism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, here we have one student who's talking about a cashiering job that gave him so much time to think because the work was so lacking in any intellectual demand and just couldn't stop thinking about how bullshit it was and how, like, Imagine a world where I didn't need to be standing here all day gatekeeping things that people need. Yeah. And David Graeber goes on to say, this is what happens, of course, when you first open the entire world of social and political possibility to a young mind by sending it to college and then tell it to stop thinking and tidy up already tidy shelves. If you have time to lean, you have time to clean. Oh, yeah. That was the most specific relatable task Mm -hmm. in the whole book from when I worked at Jimmy John's. (laughs) And yeah, like... There wasn't a lot to do. Like, I was a delivery driver. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a sandwich maker 
we only had a few tasks to do it like they created things for us to do like i imagine under this under the auspice of this philosophy i probably spent more time cleaning things than delivering sandwiches okay um and like we would constantly scrape trays like with these scrapers like they would that they would bake the bread on and so like anytime there wasn't a thing to do like in those few moments of just literally leaning there I was pretty anxious because i was like my boss is within like arm's reach like he could see me doing nothing should I like go dirty up a tray just so I can clean it to look busy to avoid getting chastised? <laughs> like this, I never did that, yeah. but the thought occurred to me that it would make more sense to dirty up a tray just so I could proceed to immediately clean it just to have something to do rather than not make a mess just to clean it and save myself time, energy, and pride. For sure. Here's another student quote. There's absolutely no reason not to just give students the money and automate or elim eliminate the work that the student was doing. Right? Yeah. And then David Graeber goes on to say, I think we can conclude that from these jobs, students learn at least five things. One, how to operate under others' direct supervision. Mm -hmm. Two, how to pretend to work even when nothing needs to be done. Three, that one is not paid money to do things, however useful or important, that one actually enjoys. Four, yep. that one is paid money to do things that are in no way useful or important and that one does not enjoy. And five, that at least in jobs requiring interaction with the public, even when one is being paid to carry out tasks one does not enjoy, one also has to pretend to be enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's when, where we jump into the bullshitization of education which is tied into the bullshitization of knowledge production. Mm. The way that we teach other people to think is ultimately the way that we teach them the, to work, which is ultimately the way that we teach them to produce knowledge. This leads me to Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos <laughs> CEO and founder, who applied Thomas- She's a hero. She, she boozled Kissinger. She boozled him, like respect. Well, yeah, I guess, she did. She did. She he was on the board. So many powerful, powerful men. She swindled them across out of the aisle. Didn't yeah. she boozled Biden? Wasn't he in on Theranos too? I think too? he was. I think Bloomberg was in on it. Oh, I don't remember. There was some notable billionaire. I can't remember his politics, but it was wild. Did, did they all lose money? I hope they did. Oh, they all lost money because Theranos imploded like a dying star. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, they left that on skate. Like there was someone who just recently <laughs> said, like if Elizabeth Holmes came up to him with another thing, he'd consider it because she's just such a visionary. She doesn't fucking blink. Whatever. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get into like her appearance or her behavior because what matters is ultimately the way that this case study reflects so much about Silicon Valley, which is that she took the Thomas Edison approach of steal other people's theft. work. Yeah. Theft. <laughs> yeah. The theft of intellectual property, mm -hmm. taking credit for it and constantly telling a story in order to get more and more um, investment money from people for something that doesn't work yet. Mm -hmm. So it, it worked out great for Edison's incandescent light bulb, but the second that you start dealing with people's blood and the... Please buy my blood machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, they just kept coming Yeah, They just kept coming up with new stuff. I remember the uh, Current Affairs gang, they did an episode talking about a book that was just recently published just about Theranos and how one of the narratives that they created um, to, like, keep it interesting or, like to re-energize shareholders was how it was going to take this new they were going to have like either like the main blood machine I guess was going to also do this or they're going to have like a another blood machine like a side project that was specifically going to be 
for um, combat medicine. Like it was going to be more portable, faster, and like durable, I guess. So like could weather combat conditions for like combat medics to use. Yeah, the blood on... machine, but manly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. There are underlying for similarities. Men. Yes, for the mans. Yeah. Um. So. I think it's yeah that, that goes back to like it just it was just narratives and narratives to just solicit and accrue shareholder money and just keep going until again enough of the shareholders felt that they really had to inquire within and be like what's okay can you give us like a status update we're not really believing the last few quarterly reports or whatever mm-hmm. but like there was a threshold like going from one to the next shareholder who needed to like start the process of really questioning if this was a good investment opportunity or not. Yeah, and so this HBO documentary that I'm referencing here called The Inventor Out for Blood in Silicon Valley does a really good job of talking about the data rituals that we were talking about just now. These visualizations of like, look at this impressive, well-researched graph. Here's a stack of scholarly journal articles that we haven't read and you won't either that justify our belief that in 10 years we will have 3,000% growth and now is the time to invest. Right? But the second, like... And it took 12 consultants to help curate the right color palettes Mm -hmm. used in all these reports right those are all jobs yeah for sure (laughs) all of these are jobs um and so that kind of like bullshit knowledge production this visualization of data as something real reliable reproducible is something that affects so many different types of ways that we research things like policy or job creation um and i also wanted to talk about our very last category of taskmasters which um, David Graeber divides into two categories. They two taskmasters. Yeah, two or two. What? two. Two. Yeah. So type one taskmasters are roles that consist entirely of assigning work to others. This job can be considered bullshit if the taskmaster herself believes that there is no need for her intervention and that if she were not there, underlings would be perfectly capable of carrying on by themselves. And then the more nefarious category is the type two. Let me just pull that up real quick on my handy dandy control F. Okay, type two taskmasters may also have real duties in addition to their role as taskmaster, but if all or most of what they do is to create bullshit tasks for others, then their own jobs can be classified as bullshit too. Mm. Okay, so we've covered all five categories. (laughs) Yeah, but we gotta get to the good part. What is the good part? The UBI part. Oh, the UBI part. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the universal basic income. Sure. That's at the end of the book where we... Which uh, was very intentional. Where, where mm-hmm. David Graeber is saying, okay, so here's here's a, a portrait of, you know, this bullshit that's going on. What what might we do about it? And uh, one, one potential solution that uh, David Graeber talks about is the universal basic income. What is that? Very legal and very cool. <laughs> so first off, I just want to touch on how David Graeber is like, let me be real here. I'm an anarchist. Right. I don't actually believe that things like policy or that the political we exists. If we say that the ruling class is representative of the decision making power of America, then we are deeply wrong about the way that power actually works. And the second that we start regulating something like a wage or fair distribution, you're going to create a whole other class of bullshit jobs that are going to fritter away taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. Right? But then he says, that said, 
<laughs> Let's think about UBI as a right. safe word to working a wage job. Right. <laughs> um, so he talks about how there is a relationship of domination between the boss and the worker, mm -hmm. right? Except that unlike BDSM games, what you do have between you don't have a safe word like you can't opt out the only real safe word that you have in the authoritative work relationship is I the quit. words i quit which leaves you precarious yeah. and without an option it's not a, so yeah it's fake it's yeah it's fake safe word yeah. yeah um so for him ubi is the existence of like a stopgap of like well fuck you i have this twenty five thousand dollars guaranteed to me every year by the government during which Without a means testing class of bureaucrats, yeah. I can access at any time. Have Have y'all heard of the concept of "fuck you" money? Yes. <laughs> what? Lucy no. Liu, yeah. No, I it, haven't. Was, Break well, it down. It, it's a common phrase, but she's the reason I know about it. Okay, yeah, I, I don't remember where I'd heard it from, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, "fuck you" money. It's the idea of having a bit of money saved up so that if you really hate where you're at in your life, you can say "fuck you," I'm leaving. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a kind of... Like having the money to go buy an RV and go to California? Yeah, I don't have fuck yeah. you money. I've never in my life had fuck you money. I've, I have a fuck you credit card, maybe. <laughs> there you go. Like, it's a, it's a, it's so, a stopgap to a stopgap. So, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's having the modicum of financial independence, freedom, that you can weather a significant change. If, you're, if you decide you're on the wrong path, you can say, okay... I'm done, I'm gonna go do something different. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of, most of us don't have that luxury. Um, so a, a UBI, a you might think of majority. A, a universal basic income, which is where the government gives everybody a certain amount of money on a regular basis. Um, what are the one of the potential good that could come of that is everyone will have a little bit of fuck you money. We can all quit our if we all have the power to quit our jobs, if we all have the option to leave this toxic relationship, um, we have more freedom. We the, the the bosses don't have as much of a grave threat on us. We can say, okay, this bullshit job isn't working out for me. I'm gonna go do something else maybe that would lead to a decrease of bullshitization. And unfortunately, he feels the need to present this, his only prescription in the entire book that he gives with a lot of like hedging, like, I don't believe in government, this is literally the only prescription I can offer you, and I can't even argue that it's the best thing. But I, I, I'm a little disappointed that he felt the need to be like, this is something that would be much better than a federal jobs guarantee. And mm -hmm. this book came out, I think, before the Green New Deal was super present yeah. in like mainstream politics i would love very to hear... it missed the window very short like barely right. missed because this is from 2018 yeah so i would love to hear an anarchist's opinion on that mm -hmm. now given yeah. where the discourse is especially if we can negotiate along with the federal jobs guarantee also like mm -hmm. a, a cap of hours like yeah no i think it's fair to give uh anarchists or anarchism a break yeah. in the face of global um climate disaster right. <laughs> like it's not really something we should fairly expect it to deal with because these are totally unprecedented and all very difficult to imagine um situations and he emphasizes the importance of like emergent strategy right as an anarchist to position yourself in the moment see what are my resources what are my problems in my immediate environment and what are other people already doing about it how can i help them right mm -hmm. so this is the biggest blanket universal recommendation that he has um he also finds it really important to mention that Foucault himself was mm -hmm. 
a noticeably Jail changed man. man. Jail man. Yeah, a noticeably changed man after he started doing BDSM, like like having an active relationship with the dominatrix at Berkeley. <laughs> um, Casual. <laughs> yeah, um, and so while Foucault never explicitly said, "Hey, UBI is the safe word," <laughs> Raber found okay. it very informative in his process of recommending a safe word out of the coercive, not optional relationship that we have to waged labor. I'm, I'm curious about how Foucault changed after getting into BDSM, but I, that might be another change in for another day. <laughs> it was just apparently a lot friendlier, more oh, helpful, okay. well, kinder. Good, good, good for him. Yeah. He, had he, didn't, a... he didn't change his ideas or anything? <laughs> no, okay, he just became that's, less that's disagreeable. <laughs> more tolerable in public. That's nice. That's he, sta- he stopped wiling out. Yeah. And so, you know, that pretty much summarizes a good bit of the book. There's a lot that we haven't been able to touch on. For example, we haven't yet talked about the difference between quote unquote real market value mm-hmm. and social value. Yeah. But just him using qualitative methods, he like to analyze this data in, in whatever way he did, he just found that the term social value kept being used in context to mean being helpful to others. Mm-hmm. This has no social value because I'm not helping anybody. All I'm doing is ticking a box, funneling money up towards somebody who makes 10 times what I make so that he can funnel that money up to somebody who makes 10 times what he makes. Well, that's, those are the conservative estimates here, but yeah. Right, for sure. Yeah. Um, because the average is up what, like 237, like a CEO makes 237 times the average employer of a company not yeah. like not the lowest the average that sounds mm-hmm. plausible mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so the last time i saw it the quote i want to read here on economic value versus social values is quote for most people social value isn't just about creating wealth or even leisure it is equally about creating sociability organ donation allows people to save one another's lives the glastonbury music festival allows them to slog through the mud together smoking <laughs> drugs and playing or listening to their favorite music Yep. That is, to give one another joy and happiness. Such collective experiences can be considered of obvious social value. In contrast, making it easier for rich people to avoid one another, it's a notorious thing that very wealthy people almost invariably dislike their neighbors, shows not one hint of social value. Yeah. And I want to talk to you guys about like the distinction between quote-unquote caring professions versus gatekeeping professions. Right? So, like, throughout the book, he talks about different social workers talking about how it's literally their job mm-hmm. to just make poor people feel bad about themselves. Right, right. Um, and to punish them for not having three forms of ID. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in education, there's talking to teachers about how much of their time is filled up with bureaucracy and exhaustion and being underpaid because they're, perf- they're doing this task that is so noble it cannot be compensated fairly. It would be. It would attract the wrong people. Oh yeah, I love that one. I put into that all a tragic amount of time in real life. Like they don't want people to. This comes back to that baseball article you showed me earlier. Like Mm. if you're wanting to get paid well to be a baseball player, you're not doing it for the right reasons. You should be doing it for the love of the game. You should be doing it for the love of the children to be a teacher. So so this not for money. So this is this is kind of coming to a concept that the book introduced to me. I hadn't heard of this before. The idea of moral envy. Mm. Um, Which is this, bad. This Very comes. Bad. This comes from the idea that um, a lot of us realize on some level that the professions in our society that do the most, like real social value, real good for for society, uh, things like 
garbage collectors, teachers, etc., uh, things that really need to be done or confer some benefit on others are the, the jobs that make the least money. And there's some mixture of that belief that, oh, if you're doing this, you shouldn't be getting made, you shouldn't be making money, you should be doing this for, for the passion, for because yep. you believe in it. Or, or, the, or uh, it, interest, it introduces the idea of moral envy, which is kind of the envy that we feel at seeing these other people who are doing something that has more like social value than our own bullshit jobs. Yeah, and sometimes... like, can you imagine how like a bunch of people's brains would just break if teachers got paid like doctors? Right. Uh, or if people... nurses got paid like right. doctors. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's an entire classist analysis, a class analysis that could be employed about like just between the American Medical Association versus the American or yeah the American Nurses Association. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the AMA back in the 60s opposed Medicare. Mm-hmm. The Nurses Association supported it. Mm-hmm. And that is not a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, 100%. doctors get paid way more than nurses um so the the idea is that we because we're all working these bullshit jobs, we kind of have a, a certain resentment of people with jobs that are seen as nobler than ours. Like, oh, you're making a real positive difference in the world. Yeah. And that we, we as a society kind of project this, like, oh, we've got to kind of punish them. Or, like, well, they better not be making any money from this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that mm-hmm. that's a weird concept to me, but it kind of makes sense considering how much immediate anger things like teacher strikes seem to provoke from a lot of people oh yeah mm-hmm. there's a lot yeah. of motivated reasoning going on anytime teachers want to eat <laughs> and keep the lights on at least you get to have a job that's meaningful right <laughs> you should be so blessed right yeah. and, and well that that comes down to i think one of the big social dynamics of the whole uh bullshit jobs phenomenon is that uh, I'm, I'm gonna quote from uh page 175 this is uh david graver speaking to the kind of how this influences people's thoughts and emotions and our our relations to each other in society um one thing is inescapable such work arrangements foster a political landscape rife with hatred and resentment those struggling and without work resent the employed the employed are encouraged to resent the poor and unemployed who are constantly told are scroungers and freeloaders Those trapped in bullshit jobs resent workers who get to do real productive or beneficial labor. And those who do real productive or beneficial labor, unpaid, degraded, and unappreciated, increasingly resent those who they see as monopolizing those few jobs where one can live well while doing something useful, high-minded, or glamorous, who they refer to as the liberal elite. (laughs) All are united in their loathing for the political class, who they see, correctly, as corrupt. But the political class, in turn, finds those other forms of vacuous hatred extremely convenient since they distract attention from themselves. Yeah. Um, so, wow, yeah, I, I immediately saved that quote in my text file because that, um, you know, it's... I think this this thought will kind of resonate with anyone who reads the book. It's not the part of the book that gets most into the weeds, but I think it's possibly the, the part of the book that is a is the most important thought about how bullshitization affects us as a society for sure yeah there's this moment even where he talks about the bullshitization of care so throughout the book he's been talking about the bullshitization of education social work medicine as we've mentioned (coughs) 
But he's also talking about how, like, I'll just read aloud this quote. Mm -hmm. Our actions are caught up in relations of caring, but most caring relations require we leave the world more or less as we found it. In the same way that teenage idealists regularly abandon their dreams of creating a better world and come to accept the compromises of adult life at precisely the moment they marry and have children, caring for others, especially over the long term, requires maintaining a world that's relatively predictable as the grounds on which caring can take place. Mm -hmm. One cannot save to ensure college education for one's children unless one is sure in 20 years there will still be colleges, or for that matter, money. And that, in turn, means that love for others... People, animals, landscapes regularly requires the maintenance of institutional structures one might otherwise despise. Mm -hmm. And I think that the ways in which care is quantified and weaponized makes the sustenance of these really toxic social relations possible. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I'm thinking about... I'm thinking about that compromise that they're talking about, this creation of a stable, predictable life in which the data that we generate today through research will still hold water <laughs> in the years in which the students we will teach in the future will be learning. That kind of complicity with the injustices today in order to have a predictable tomorrow. Wait, I, I don't understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, I guess, like... So, like, if you... Back to using the college example, mm -hmm. um, if you're a parent or um, a wannabe parent, and it's a given, like our society over, I don't even know, going back how many decades, in the US, where it's like, your kid is going to college, because right. college is, like getting a degree is considered like what you have to do to be successful mm -hmm. in the US context. And what that means is you support college, like the idea of college, and you would support it being a thing 20 years in the future from when you're having your kids so you're not gonna go about the things to make that institution irrelevant right, or destroy right, right. it yeah, because in its current condition you are conceptualized it to being a monumental stepping stone in your child's future life Yeah, and so 20 years for the next 20 years you're not going to do anything so radical as to undermine the benefit of like college education that your child is going to get yeah, and just yeah. extending that to all the, the vast myriad of institutions right, that exist right. in our life public and private so like these systems suck but we want to perpetuate them because they're what we know and we don't want to let go of whatever advantage we've accrued we've, we've accrued within these systems whatever semblance of order makes us believe that our future is predictable yeah and, and we also I feel like I feel like we also do this kind of psychological defense me mechanism kind of thing where we're like I suffered through a bullshit job so Right, <laughs> everyone, you know, mm -hmm. what you're trying to avoid these bullshit jobs. What you think you're special? Like, it's la ley de la vida, exactly. Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's mom for uh, that's the law of life, yeah. Um, or it's like life sucks, life doesn't give you anything. It's like it could, yeah. <laughs> like, if we automated life, the it could seeds, give us a lot. The means, so I want to return to this question of quantification of care, automation. So there's this difference between the tasks that we want to do for each other that we wouldn't want to be automated. Acts of care, of love, of joy, of seizing the day, etc. Acts like sitting around in a coffee shop talking politics or We should automate that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just end it. <laughs> like uh, sitting around on a bedroom floor talking about a book. Mm-hmm. We could automate that too. Yeah, I bet, we, I bet we, could get, we could get some real good text bots to just mimic ourselves way better than we actually are ourselves. Isn't that Twitter? 
Well, so I want to touch on like, what is the work that we want to be present for? There is work that we want automated, box ticking, assessment, or eliminated completely. I don't want to have knowledge production be determined on measurable learning outcomes. Mm. Um, If we weren't as dependent on like dependent, like measurable learning outcomes, we wouldn't be in the no child left behind mess that we're in today. We wouldn't be in the standardized testing mill scam that we're in today. Mm. so, but assuming that a lot of but these if you remember from that presentation, um, no child left behind didn't like no one who was endorsing it and writing it realized the extent that of of its impact for concerning standardization. Like that was not the plan because legislators weren't fucking included during the design of policymaking, and of course, policy never I mean, translates teachers. literally into practice. Um, Do you mean teachers? Well, yeah, yeah. yeah educators, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, educated, not le- le- legislators were included. Oh, in yeah, sorry, yes. Educators yeah. were educators not, not included. It's, but it sounds like his iron law of institutions where it's like any attempt to increase efficiency or increase learning outcomes um, always results in more bullshitization. Right. So those are the questions I, w- I, I want to puzzle with you. What work do we want to be present for it's usually the the work of caring leftist left i want i want to be here for leftist infighting (laughs) that will never i never want that to go away i want to be here for leftist out fighting (laughs) no we don't leave our homes okay (laughs) we stay in and we read and we make podcasts so something i want us all to read for next week is Mm -hmm. or next week sorry next month we are not on a fixed timeline here we take our time somebody here is reifying the concept of time (laughs) time needs to die so i'm gonna kill it that i would like to read with y'all over the course of the next couple years or so capital is well yes we're gonna read capital i promise we're going to it's happening i'm on i'm almost i'm like on chapter three we might read Uh, larry here has me feeling like a christian who hasn't read the bible for not having a yeah red that is capital. a good the that's a good analogy yeah. so is capital <laughs> I mean not as long but it's up there I don't even want to watch Infinity Wars too long <laughs> okay well, then you're a fool because Infinity War is great I also and Endgame is going to be an event okay it's I'm not like engaging in this long. right now I'm so ready okay sorry sorry let's not engage with this it's an article <laughs> don't humor the comments <laughs> it's an article called Loss of a Hinterland by Loic Laquant I think his name is and um, this is an article about the loss of the margins around um, privatized, capitalized urban centers in which a marginal existence is possible, okay? So we're, with the rise of late-stage capitalism, what we, has is a, what we have is a disappearance of a viable hinterland, which is to say, um, in previous phases of modern capitalist crisis and restructuring, workers temporarily rejected from the labor market could fall back upon the social economy of their community of provenance, be it a functioning working class borough, the communal ghetto, or a rural village in the backcountry. That reminds me of my favorite chapter in People's History, Mm -hmm. which is talking about um, one of the various strikes, and it went on a little longer, and the union... You're talking about Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. Yes. Okay. Oh yeah, I, I forget because of that book. There's a bunch of people's history as a blank now. Right. Yeah. It, it's it's the way like I refer to a people's history like of the U.S. as a people's history the same way like I refer to capital as capital volume or capital volume one as capital. Okay. Like sure. it's just the colloquially, colloquially accepted term in my head. So you're talking about the strikes. Like- yeah, there was one, ad, like advanced strike where like 
the uh, workers and like their families formed their own like municipality at their own city while the strike was going on and they created their own court system for grief to settle grievances in this little strike community like not fulfilling your responsibilities mm-hmm. like cooking or cleaning or um, cleaning clothes sufficiently like they said like they created these labor institutions on a t- like this totally unofficial level to make it all work out while they were basically in a little pocket society while they were on strike but because they, they were rejected by like I imagine this happened in like a mining town where like the mining company was the town so they had to create their like I said their own like pocket community I'm not and they I'm made not it work I'm not quite sure how I feel about all that well so it's I'm, just exciting I'm all about like thinking that it is exciting people can do but also like things. we we were fighting the oppressive elements of our society and then we remake another mini society where we have like court proceedings and we punish people for not doing the things they're supposed to be doing well, okay, okay but the big takeaway here for me is that an emergent order that was self-determined arose it was based on the old orders that we knew because that's what are where the thinking was mm-hmm. and yeah. there's got to be a constant process of unsticking and rethinking our th- rethinking everything we assume in the moment Right? But, like, um, I'm thinking about this quote I heard recently that was something like, it was from a communist, and I'll attribute it later in the, in the captions, but it's like, heaven is an endless meeting. And it's this communist utopia ideal that, ideally, if we weren't stuck doing bullshit work we don't want to be doing, we would constantly be talking to the people in our immediate environments and building through the things that we have conflicts about, mm-hmm. talking through conflict, fixing what needs to be fixed, building what needs to be built, and resolving always these tensions in our thinking in this endless meeting, <laughs> right? That's yeah, what can you imagine can you imagine how much faster we would get to communism if human beings didn't require sleep? <laughs> we just had more time to fight. What about time to, like, sleep and talk about our friends' dramatic love lives and drink coffee? Like, an endless meeting is what democracy would look like if we had the time to actually do it in a grassroots, interpersonal, non-bureaucratized way. I see what you're saying there. there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can see the value in that idea. I still think heaven is an endless meeting sounds super incongruous. And I, sounds like I hell had this, to me. I had this because brief... of our bureaucratic relationships right, to meetings right. that occur in yeah. a really full world. Are these meetings... Um, business casual Our, or me- meetings meetings under capitalism suck <laughs> <laughs> they but, require seats yeah no a, a different kind of meeting in which we're really interfacing with each other and oh we all plug in to a computer mainframe yeah we're not venturing into Grimes technocracy right now <laughs> <laughs> I need to upload to the meeting <laughs> okay so we've we've said some things is there are there any other points about this book that we wanted to to cover? Um, just that I can't wait to end bullshit jobs. I can't wait to see it. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. Um, if so, the big takeaway from this, like the last few lines from the book, are just like, I just want to talk about freedom here. I'm not claiming that UBI is the best or the only solution. It's just the one that makes the most sense to me right now. Mm-hmm. But you know, let's keep rethinking what freedom looks like. Not accepting the bullshit we hate and taking for granted that we should be taking care of each other and feeling joy in that care. Mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me about this and for suggesting this, Larry. I'm so glad I was able to trick you guys into doing this whole thing. It wasn't a trick. It was good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Lydia. Thank you, Martin. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Um, y'all.
everyone, uh, thanks for listening. Keep it classless. Oh. <laughs>